Tate Chronicles now transmitting. Welcome to the Tate Chronicles on Healthcare Now Radio. And now, here's your host, Jim Tate. Good day, citizens of the free world from border to border, coast to coast, and to all the ships at sea. I bring you a warm welcome. This is your correspondent, Jim Tate. And thank you for tuning in today to the Tate Chronicles. Join me as we cut through the fog that exists at the leading edge of healthcare technology. My guest today is Malika Amini. She's the CEO of Trait, and uh, I'll spell Trait, T-R-A-Y-T, Trait. Trait offers a disruptive data analytics and clinical intelligence platform that supports mental and behavioral health access while providing a collaborative approach and maintain a 360-degree personalized view of the patient. Malakay, thanks for joining the Tate Chronicles. Thank you for having me, Jim. I first uh, met you and had a great conversation at the most recent HEMS conference. I certainly learned quite a bit in that discussion about really uh, social determinants of health, uh, how it regards behavioral health, and I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation today. But let me first inform our listeners that Trait will be at the health conference. Uh, Of course, that's spelled H-L-T-H, health conference in Las Vegas that really just uh, is almost on top of us. It's October 8th through 11th, and Trait is going to be at booth 6437. That's 6437. So tell us about Trait Health, the company you founded. Why did you find Trait Health? Um, so you did a great job of describing what Trade Health is, but um, so it Trade is a clinical uh, workflow data collection and data analytics platform um, designed for behavioral health. Um, our platform is focused on the kind of the interplay across the brain, the body, and other environmental mm. factors, mm-hmm. um, including social determinants of health and like childhood trauma, for example. Uh, Traits created a platform that maps more than 750 symptoms and factors uh, that impact behavioral health symptoms. And it, we enable clinicians to make more informed assessment and treatment decisions um, about patient health, uh, in, again, in that behavioral health um, space. It, uh, sorry, go ahead. You know, and well, you know, it just struck me that number, 750 different factors. Mm-hmm. That's a big number. Uh, so what are these kind of numbers? Uh, I mean, these factors, um, uh, uh, give me some examples of those, are those about, um, um, gender, uh, ancestry, ethnicity, food shortage, seat belts, guns in the household. What are all uh-huh. these 750 yeah. different factors? So 750 different factors include, um, multiple different things. One Mm -hmm. is obviously at symptom level, all of the behavioral health symptoms. So Mm -hmm. what does the patient's uh, mental health look like? Uh, The other factors are other medical symptoms. So does the patient have any other medical conditions and what do they look like? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are, you know, that we talk about social determinants of health and the definition has been kind of big, broad categories. And in our view, it needs to be broken down into smaller bits. So social determinants of health have been traditionally food and transportation and housing and Mm -hmm. uh, the general socioeconomic factors. We actually break that down into 
a number of different areas of um you know home environment um you know childhood trauma you know adverse childhood experiences and other things like a more granular level of environmental factors around a patient's um home environment or you know just life environment um and it really it does break it down into the granular levels that gives us a much better picture of those non-medical factors that could cause the medical symptoms that are mm. um, we're observing. So the 750 include both those medical factors um, across your brain and body, and also the non-medical factors that drive um, those other health issues. So th and that that kind of creates the 750 data um, symptoms and factors that we measure on a regular basis. And our view has always been that social determinants at that granular level um, and the expansion of its definition into the full environment of a patient needs to be included in the day-to-day -day clinical care of the patient if we want to be able to really assess how a patient is going to make progress on treatment. You know, the, I imagine one of the reasons that you founded TRAIT is that the behavioral health um, care domain is so fragmented right now. So uh, let me uh, see if I understand what TRAIT does. So um, at, at, at one level, TRAIT is um, a documentation tool that is used uh, to document and gather information about a particular uh, individual. Mm -hmm. um, at another level, it's a collaborative tool so healthcare team members are kind of kept up to date on uh, uh, the patient process. Is so? Are those the two main things that Trade Health is doing? Um, so we are. We do. I mean, that's definitely one. We collect data and we analyze the data uh, from the the kind of the the thing that makes us unique is that we collect the data. Uh, from the entire ecosystem around the patient. So we collect data from patients. We have family-facing applications, school-facing mm. applications, mm -hmm. primary care-facing applications. So everyone is contributing data at that same granular 750-factor level uh, you know, observation data into the application. We also streamline clinical workflows for not just an individual clinic, but we particularly have the capability and have scaled and have the functionalities to enable what is called the, the statewide psychiatry access programs, um, which are collaborative uh, programs. So they enable you know, primary care physicians and the schools to deliver care for patients exactly where they are in order to address um, you know, the issues of you know, access to those types of services. So what we do is we create those networks. We connect all of these entities that traditionally don't work together and are not at all connected to each other uh, and enable the access programs to function with a streamlined workflow. And because of the fact that we include social determinants as part of the integral integrated kind of data mm -hmm. into the platform, we actually enable the programs to also measure whether they are providing more equitable care, equitable access to care, um, not just whether the patient's getting better, but um, are, are we seeing patients where they would otherwise not have access? And that's what the trait application is uniquely 
uh, is the only the first technology that has been able to enable the statewide psychiatry access programs um, to provide that type of care and to measure their impact on health outcomes and on uh, better access to care. One thing that I'm always interested in in healthcare is is the gathering of data. And then, um, you know, all the time we're always hearing about interoperability. Uh, nobody's quite sure what it is, but when we recognize it, we, we certainly uh, appreciate it. Um, and, and so um, uh, the, is your application, uh, now I, I know uh, it, it, it's uh, uh, patient-facing, uh, care team, member facing is it's it's that 360 degree ability mm -hmm. input data is the data all uh uh input or or documented in a manual fashion or can electronic files be imported or um mm -hmm. uh, how's that how's that looking yeah no it is it can be imported and it can also export into electronic medical records so mm -hmm. we definitely have um, direct data entry uh, ports uh, sure. for manual data entry, uh, and those are necessary because Trait is the isn't pure outcomes and health data platform. Um, so we that data is not collected in the electronic medical record traditionally, right? So we collect granular levels of data that is inputted by other people, not just a clinician. Mm -hmm. The current electronic medical records, and I wish we could change that conversation forever in the US, but the main platform used in clinical settings is the electronic medical record or the electronic health records. And those are primarily, they started off and they remain an administrative streamlining tool and were revenue management tools. So they really streamline um, you know, the claims process and, you know, e-prescriptions and making sure that, uh, you know, the administrative and the administrative wor workflows are all streamlined, uh, but they never were built to, and they're compliance too, right? So, you know, for, for um, any audit that needs to happen, the electronic medical record needs to show that the proper documentation was done, the proper assessments were done. So the you know, there is a very different purpose for those. And we actually are pure health outcomes, pure health data, and really giving the clinician what they need to make a decision at that clinician visit with the patient um, instead of doing, you know, kind of documentation for, for the purposes of filing a claim. So what we do is we integrate with electronic medical records, and that's basically interoperability at its most basic level is to make sure that you integrate with the electronic medical record to receive from the electronic medical record the data that you need in your application. So we pull in, for example, some of the diagnosis or symptom level data or medication level data because they use coding libraries in the electronic medical record that we don't use. So we import that information into our application. Uh, but then we have streamlined and automated all of these validated standardized measures that need to be part of the clinical setting. Um, and those are typically on pen and paper. We have streamlined all of that, but they are needed for compliance and for reimbursement uh, for clinics. So what we do is then we push that information as a document for those purposes into the electronic medical record. So that's the basic interoperability. What where we don't have 
traditionally interoperability is across the institutions. So if you're sitting at Baylor, regardless of how many times I've integrated with the Baylor electronic medical record, for the statewide programs where Baylor and uh, Texas Tech have to work together, those electronic medical records are not connected to each other. So we as trade will integrate with every one of those electronic medical records, but we sit on top of those. So for psychiatry access programs, all clinicians can have data access for those patients that are treated in those programs. So we raise that level to connecting all of the institutions, the medical institutions that typically do not work together and there is no interoperability plan around them, uh, we enable that. We connect them as a single network of providers and they can see patients. So a patient could be sitting at a school close to Texas Tech University, but Texas Tech doesn't have a psychiatrist on staff today. And someone at Baylor in Houston can see that patient. Um, and it's a different institution. It's a different, completely different geographic area within the state. Um, and we enable that. And that's a very different level of interoperability. I want to talk about some scenarios in just a minute. But first, uh, to our audience, if you're just joining us, I'm Jim Tate. And on this episode of the Tate Chronicles, I'm speaking with Malachi Amini, who is the CEO of TRAIT. Um, with all the data that is being uh, gathered, mm -hmm. uh, is there a predictive uh, component here? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. Not today. The predictive component comes with more longitudinal data. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of, but and you know, but, you know, if you if you want to really use it as a predictive model, and we are building that data set, and our longitudinal data is very quickly building up because we go through a and single statewide deployment, so we scale very quickly with patients. Um, and that, but there are there is sufficient research that has been done that could provide predictive, more predictive models around. How do you assess what is the primary symptom that's driving everything else in a patient's health? Because they're all interconnected. You know, I use an example for you. Um, you know, if you see two patients with um, autism, right? Both of them are autistic, but both of them are nonverbal. They could even be in the same family, right? So a lot of demographics are the same. Um, but one patient is much more aggressive, for example, than the other patient is, right? Aggression is a traditional symptom of autism. Self-harm is one, um, and the nonverbal is another one. So these are all, you know, the, you know, all they all autism, but the patients look very different from each other, right? One is very quiet and in a corner and not, you know, doing anything. The other one's really aggressive and screaming all the time, right? So the way um, we function is we actually create a we collect so much data that let's say for the patient that shows a lot of aggression. That patient also has some gastrointestinal or digestive issues. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things, and we have actually had this as an experiment with two patients to compare. So if you send that patient as an example, if that, pa that patient actually got treated for the gastrointestinal problems, and then all of the other symptoms of autism, the severe aggression, the screaming, all of those things went away. And that patient became a different type of autistic kid. It was much more quiet, much less harmful to uh, himself and to family, right? So it, it's really understanding what primary symptom should be treated 
that could help bring everything else to a better place. And then you avoid a lot of uh, throwing medications or over-medicating a kid, right? Or any individual. So those are the types of things that we highlight. And those could be today, you don't even need to predict them. You can just create a level of severity or show what is what mm-hmm. appears to be the primary symptom with some level of confidence. And a clinician still remains the gold standard. They still need to make that decision. So we're not telling them go here, but we're telling them this is what we have collected and analyzed. And, you know, our assessment is the GI is the primary symptom. If you address the gastrointestinal, you can improve everything else before you medicate them any further. And then patients potentially could just stay on basic levels of therapy and not need any medications if you just treat the primary symptom. Right. And so those are the types of examples of if you talk about prediction, uh, no one will predict any of it, but you can provide a much more directional, um, more accurate, more granular level of information where a clinician is able to predict. Exactly. Probably the one. Right. So that's what we enable. I understand totally. And, you know, that uh, uh, the idea of a predictive model. just on its face sounds fantastic. And uh, that has hyped AI uh, to artificial intelligence or augmented mm-hmm. intelligence to quite, uh, mm-hmm. quite a bit. Uh, sure. But if if those uh, systems um, have not been trained exactly. on very large databases, mm-hmm. you know, that involve different ethnic groups, different cultural groups, all kind of different things. Age, gender, demographic. Exactly. Everything is a factor. Exactly. Uh, You're going to have implicit bias in the code, bias in the code. Definitely. We rely on that. We rely on um, predictive models. We rely on machine learning. As we keep growing, our data sets get more and more, our algorithms get more refined. Our data gets more um, kind of, you know, it's a lot easier to train a model when you have a lot more data on a much more diverse population of patients. So that's definitely, we rely on that. But at the end of the day, it's not even, I think AI is a huge factor and it has to be, there's a danger to not using it properly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our goal is to always remain evidence-based and that the AI models train according to those principles still to give the clinician the best data that they need. Uh, to make a good decision. At the end of the day, AI, machine learning, um, any of these health platforms are not going to replace a clinician's judgment and a clinician's decision and a clinician's direction. And that's the mistake that I think um, a lot of, um, you know, the industry, you know, not this industry, but in general, we talk mm-hmm. about generative AI or chat GPT as a replacement for making things happen or, you know, or driving all of our decisions. And I think in healthcare and in several other industries, honestly, it is very dangerous to go down that path. I think it's important to train evidence-based data. It's important to train models over a period of time. And it's also really important to train them for the purposes of a clinician using them, not for providing direction to the patient or providing a definitive answer. And our goal is to always be a tool for clinicians to make better decisions. And and so, um, trait, I guess at its highest and and best use, um, is a network. 
Uh, and folks have to be connected to that network mm -hmm. uh, to really get full advantage. So let me ask you about a scenario. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's say a primary care provider is, uh, believes that a patient needs behavioral health support, mm -hmm. diagnosis, or, or whatever. If, if, if they're part of your network, what would mm -hmm. be, uh, how would they do referrals? How would information, how would it actually work? Sure. So, you know, a patient sees, let's say I'm going to use an example of actually something that shows the extent of the network. So let's say a patient is 16 years old and goes to their pediatrician, which is typically, it's a female 16 year old goes to pediatrician and this patient is pregnant, 16-year-old mm. mm -hmm. teen. So, and the patient is showing signs of, you know, this is obviously could potentially be an anxiety, um, you know, kind of state of anxiety for a 16-year-old. So the primary care is observing those symptoms. And let's say this patient has also had um, prior history of ADHD and is taking Adderall, right? So that primary care physician is really not equipped always to make a decision about, should Adderall continue or not? The patient is showing signs of real anxiety and meltdowns, and it it's causing them to start to fail at school or have other you know you know other issues, other life issues as a result. So what do I need to do? They're not always equipped to make those decisions right at that office. So our application uh, for those that are connected to the network, so primary care has to enroll in the program. But then I'm going to assume that that primary care is connected to the program. But what they would do, or they can sign up online, but um, what they would do is they would electronically, they log in and electronically submit a request for a consultation. And that consultation goes to our clinics that are providing behavioral health uh, interventions and support. So they're, you know, therapists and psychiatrists sitting on the other side of the application. Mm -hmm. So it sends a consultation request. Someone, a psychiatrist from, let's say, Baylor calls the primary care physician back within 30 minutes. So that's the very, that's that's a key piece of information. Wow. Because you have to wait six months to get into a psychiatry clinic. Sure. <laughs> so they get a call back within 30 minutes um, that says, okay, I saw the basic information you submitted. Let me ask you a few more questions. And they go through a full conversation about the condition of the patient that gets documented. The behavioral health specialist or the psychiatrist is documenting all of that structured data what is the patient taking as medication? All of that information gets documented on traits, which is why it helps uh, train models. Um, and so it, it gets added. And um, the psychiatrist then says, okay, based on the information you're giving me, they could even assign a standard like a PHQ-9 or a SCARED or GAT-7 to say, hey, have your patient complete this. And I want to look at the results before I make a recommendation. So that loop also happens on the trade application. And then the clinic, the psychiatrist would say, here are my recommendations. Why don't you let the patient stay on Adderall, provide a small dose of, you know, Zoloft to reduce the, um, you know, the anxiety level. But the difference is that when this um, consult comes in, depending on the profile of the patient. So this patient is a pregnant teenager. So the first thing that this does is that it gets transferred to a perinatal, to a reproductive psychiatrist, not a typical child psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. We connect it to a reproductive psychiatrist that can make medication recommendations for that patient because at the end of the day, that patient is a pregnant female, is not a teenager anymore. 
right? And so that's the first place that it goes. And then that call gets transferred seamlessly. The piece, primary care never knows about all of this. This is just in our back end. Then it gets transferred to a child psychiatrist, uh, an adolescent therapist, to provide some tools for coping, to provide some other types of resources for the patient. It still goes to the primary care, but they do provide resources and other types of advice that are relevant to a teenage patient. It's no longer, this is no longer about the pregnancy. The pregnancy is medication, reproductive psychiatrist. Still the 16-year-old adolescent needs a, an adolescent therapist. So it gets seamlessly transferred between child and adolescent to reproductive, back to child and adolescent. But the primary care, the only thing that individual knows is I have a problem, I submit a request for a consult, and I get a call back and it solves all of my problems without, you know, without my knowing how all happened in the background. Wow. Just got the recommendation and then they deliver the recommendation to the patient and the patient leaves without needing to see a psychiatrist because they were treated at the clinic. You know, that is, uh, you know, so it's not uh, just a referral type situation. It's a collaborative consultative Exactly. This is the consultation. Exactly. exactly. So that same primary care physician might have a patient that has some severe signs of anxiety, mm -hmm. in which case this program may not be the most appropriate program. That patient might actually need direct intervention. So at that point, they would submit a request. They would submit actually a referral, direct referral online on our platform. They submit a referral and our school-based program is very, is got, has gotten national attention for this. So, you know, if that kid is sitting at school, but the primary care can do the same, they would submit a referral of a patient. The psychiatrist will call back. Someone will call back, make sure everything has been clean. Data is all there. And what they do afterwards is they have five, you know, roughly five, but there are, you know, various, you know, programs, five to 10 uh, direct interventions on telemedicine. So that, again, the patient never needs to go in. It's a telemedicine set of um, interventions and interactions with the patient directly mm -hmm. until the patient is it has been stabilized and is no longer in a more severe situation. And then they um, provide referrals to long-term care. So a community health center or some other local therapist can then see that patient on an ongoing basis, but they avoid the escalation of a patient's situation as they wait for a six month exactly. uh, appointment. Exactly. Right? It, it solves that problem. You know, um, and we're almost totally out of time, but I'll tell you one thing I, I like about your approach uh, and your solution is it reduces the friction. Absolutely. And anything that can be done uh, to reduce friction is great. Um, I, I want to say to our listeners, if you want to find out more about um, the work that Trade's doing and, and uh, their applications, that's it trait.health, T-R-A-Y-T dot health. Um, and um, if anybody's going to be at the health conference this week, October 8th through 11th, uh, just starting in a few days, uh, you can stop by and meet uh, Malakay at booth 6437. Um, and I believe you've got a big presentation coming up Tuesday afternoon on the impact stage. We do. We do. Actually, this goes back to one of the things that you asked about how do they get connected. So we're going to be talking about the impact of social determinants uh, at an expanded level uh, on patient health. So how do you um, 
think bigger about social determinants. So we're looking, we're going to be talking about, um, you know, how a patient's environment can impact their ongoing health on a daily basis. Mm. We, I'm going to share this, uh, this stage with Dr. Roshni Kohli, who is the medical director at the Meadows Institute for um, Mental Health Policy. And it's going to be moderated by, by Marnie Hayutin, who is the a content writer for Ritz Communications, but also an incredible, um, has had an incredible research and content around social determinants of health in her past. So very much looking forward to it. Well, we're totally out of time. I've got to say to our audience, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Take Chronicles. And I offer a special salute to my guest today, Malakay Amini, CEO of Trait. Malakay, thanks for joining today. Thank you so much, Jim. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to catch up. You can find more information on this show's program page at healthcarenowradio.com. That's healthcarenowradio.com. Until we meet again, here's wishing you smooth sailing and safe harbors. Tape Chronicles transmission ending now.